We're in our message series on the life of Jesus, the time Jesus spent on the earth as a man, on his mission to reconnect man with God, restoring the relationship that we were all created for. The life of Jesus is documented in four books we find within the Bible. They're known collectively as the Gospels. And today we're gonna be in chapter 26 of the Gospel of Matthew. And as we pick up our study, it is the night Jesus has shared his final meal, the famous Last Supper with his disciples. After eating it together, he leads them outside down one side of the Kidron Valley in Jerusalem over a brook at the bottom that would have been running red that evening with the blood of tens of thousands of lambs that would have been slaughtered in the temple in celebration of Passover a powerful and vivid reminder for anyone who would cross over the Brook Kidron that sin ultimately always leads to death. By the estimates of the Jewish historian Josephus, there would have been around a quarter million Passover lambs killed in a 24-hour period in Jerusalem at that time. And we're not exaggerating when we say the river was literally running with blood that evening. As Jesus crosses over, he makes his way up the other side of the Kidron Valley, the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane as he continues his journey to be our Passover lamb, the God who would die in our place for our sin. And he makes his way into the Garden of Gethsemane, which as we learned last week, was a place that Jesus went on a regular basis to be with his disciples and to pray. And as he's on his way there, he does something astounding that we studied in our past two messages. He stops and he prays to his Father in heaven very personally, but allowing his disciples to hear every word that he's saying. And if you missed those couple of messages, I encourage you to listen to them. You're going to be blessed by what the Lord said and the way that he prayed for you in that prayer. And so it is now in this garden that we find Jesus. The Garden of Gethsemane was a large olive grove, uh, an area full of olive trees where olives would have been picked and then crushed to make the oil for which they are so well known. And it would be the places we'll find tonight where Jesus will be pressed and crushed by the weight of what is bearing down on him at this moment in time. There's going to be practical application in our study this evening, but I don't think that's what's most important in the text this evening. My prayer is that each of us, whether new to the faith or a veteran of decades, would be overwhelmed once again in a fresh way by the love of Jesus demonstrated for you and I by what he went through on his journey to the cross. His whole life was difficult, but it was on this night that the darkest few days in the history of the world would begin to unfold and at the center of all this darkness would be Jesus in our place. Throughout the betrayal, arrest, trials, beating and crucifixion of Jesus, it will not be ropes that bind him or nails that pin him and hold him to the cross. The only thing that will bind Jesus through these few awful days will be his love for you and me. And if you marvel at anything in today's study, if you take note of anything, let it be this, that Jesus loves you. And he loves you more than you know. He loves you. 
Let's jump in. We're going to be in Matthew 26 and we're going to jump in at verse 30. It says, And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. If you're curious, they were probably singing something between Psalm 113 and 118. The Talmud dedicated these as praise psalms of Egypt and they would be sung at the Passover. I sort of imagine as all old songs are in our head. Have you noticed that if you think of an old song from long ago, it's always like a monotone song where they just sing one note and just sing like the entire psalm in one note. So maybe they were doing something like that. Verse 31, then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night. The idea is right now, guys, I'm your friend. I'm your rabbi. I'm your leader. And you're proud to know me. But before this night is over, you'll be ashamed of me and you'll be offended by me. And the fact that you even know me is going to make all of you stumble this evening. And then quoting Zechariah 13, 7, Jesus continues, For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Can you imagine how this statement must have made the disciples feel after they've enjoyed an, an intimate meal together? where Jesus has shared with them secrets of the kingdom and of heaven and of the future after Jesus has allowed them to listen in on his personal prayer with his Father in heaven. After all of that, Jesus says, by the way, all of you are going to be made to stumble because of me this night. It's heavy stuff that would have been confusing and, and shocking to these disciples in the moment. And Jesus continues in verse 32, but after I've been raised... I will go before you to Galilee. I love that. It's the ultimate version of calling the future right there. He's saying, but after I've risen from the dead, I'll catch you all in Galilee, okay? We'll catch up. We'll talk about it more later. And that's exactly what would end up happening. In a few days when the two Marys go to visit the tomb of Jesus, an angel will tell them to tell the disciples, quote, he's risen from the dead and indeed he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him. And on their way to tell the disciples, Jesus himself will appear to the two Marys and he will say to them, go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and there they will see me. And it would happen exactly that way. Now Peter is going to once again explain to Jesus that this is not how things are going to go. This is not the plan. Verse 33, Peter answered and said to him, even if all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. You know, Peter loves the Lord. He means every word he says here. And we can't laugh too hard because Lord knows none of us have ever made rash promises to the Lord, right? Lord, if you do this for me, I'll never sin again. We've all done things like that that are equally ridiculous. He genuinely believes it, but, but Peter has a pride problem. And the gist of what he's saying is, Lord, I understand. I understand what you're saying. You're speaking in the general term because all these other guys are here. But I just want you to know, yes, what you're saying is true and applies to them, but, but not me. But I, I'm tracking with you, Jesus. You're speaking generally, but not to me. And I want you to make a note of this. The person who believes they will never stumble already has. The person who believes they will never stumble already has. The Christian who says, you know, I've, I've reached the point where I don't really struggle with sin anymore. That's the person you need to watch out for. 
Ladies, you know, it's the guy who says, you know, I don't really struggle with sexual temptation. Really. You've transcended the driving force of every action men take in life. You've transcended that somehow through your relationship with Jesus. Not an issue for you. You guys need to run away, ladies, if you find that man who says, no, it's not an issue for me. I'm never tempted. The wise person is the one who knows themselves, knows their human frailty, knows their weakness, and takes steps to avoid being put in a situation beyond what they can handle. That's what wisdom is. But Peter says, Jesus, it's not going to be an issue for me. I'm the exception. I'm going to get through this because I've got a can-do attitude. i got that grit. I'm a goal setter. I've got determination. I won't be tempted, Jesus, because i got resolve. This right here, strong. I'm strong-minded. Here's the reality. Satan, right? Prince of darkness had asked God for permission to, quote, sift Peter like wheat, and God had said, go ahead. The only thing that was going to help Peter was not willpower, but drawing closer to Jesus. And often we find ourselves saying, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. And the reason that we did or said that thing that we're so shocked we did is because without realizing it, we'd gotten to the place where we were overconfident in ourselves. We're overconfident in our flesh. No, you see, I've gotten past that. That's not a problem for me. I've become a better version of myself. So... I'm not really prone to weakness in that area anymore. It's not a risk for me. The Apostle Paul nailed it when he said, put it on your outlines, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. So write this down. It's a fatal mistake to have confidence that your flesh will help you win a spiritual battle. It's a fatal mistake to have confidence that your flesh will help you win a spiritual battle. In other words, when you're in a spiritual battle, when when you're being tempted on a spiritual level, when your marriage is under attack relationally on a spiritual level, you're not going to come out of that situation victorious because of your willpower. When your kids are being attacked by an enemy that wants to devour them, it's not your parenting techniques that are going to make the difference. Spiritual battles have to be won with spiritual warfare and spiritual weapons. And what Satan loves to do is to try to convince us that we can take the fight into the physical. Your willpower, your intelligence, the skills that you've accumulated, that's what's going to help you overcome this. And Satan does not want us to recognize when we're in a spiritual battle. How many of you know what I'm talking about when you've been in a situation and you're thinking, I've tried everything And in that moment, suddenly, you know the Holy Spirit is telling you, have you considered that the issue may be spiritual? And you suddenly go, oh, now I understand what's happening. It's a fatal mistake to have confidence that your flesh will help you in a spiritual battle. It won't. Verse 34, Jesus said to him, assuredly, that means you can take it to the bank. I say to you that this night... Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So let me get more specific, Peter. 
Not only will you stumble tonight, but you're going to deny even knowing me, and you're going to do it three times in the next few hours because roosters would usually begin crowing around 3 a.m. Verse 35, Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And so said all the disciples. And I noticed that Jesus doesn't argue with them because he knows he's not going to change their minds right now. And he knows that they're going to remember when what he's told them turns out to be true. And there's a whole sermon in this little interaction. I know you're thinking, oh no, don't worry, I'm not going to give you the whole sermon. There's a whole sermon in this one little interaction that Jesus has with Peter and his disciples. And I see an awful lot of you and I in this. So Jesus will come to us and he will tell us something that is true. Hey, you're, you're dabbling in dangerous territory with this thing. You're not going to be able to handle it. This relationship is, is not healthy for you. You need to be extremely careful here. He will come to us and tell us a truth. He'll say, you're, you're not strong enough to handle this right now. You need to be wise. The Lord will come to us. He'll speak truth either through the Holy Spirit or through his word. And instead of saying, thank you for giving me the truth, Lord, we'll say, that's not true. That's not going to affect me. That might be true for other people. But that's certainly not true for me. And the Lord responds, assuredly, I say to you, it's true for you. And we respond, no, it's not. And just as he did with the disciples, the Lord refuses to argue with us because he realizes we've stubbornly made up our minds. We're not going to listen to him. And so he allows us to exercise our free will and then experience the natural consequences of ignoring the counsel of God. And it's usually when those natural consequences begin to roll in that we begin to cry out, why have you forsaken me, Lord? <laughs> Where are you? Have you abandoned me? Here's what we all need to be reminded of. Write this down. Everything God's word says about me is true. I am not an exception. Everything God's word says about me, the good and the bad, is true. I am not an exception. And you might think, Jeff, Jeff, that's obvious. Come on, I could preach that sort of stuff. You would not believe the number of Christians I have met who have done things that the Bible is very black and white that we should not do, and their rationale is, I feel like the Lord has given me an exception. You would not believe the number of times I've encountered that. You know, and it doesn't matter if I say, look, look at the page. There's, there's no asterisk with your name except for you at the bottom of the page. Like, this is truth. It applies to all of us. None of us are the exception to the Word of God. When the Word of God says, hey, stay away from these things because they'll get you involved with sin that will destroy your life, I'm not the exception to that. When the Word of God says, this is how you need to treat your spouse if you want to have a blessed marriage, I'm not the exception and when the word of God says, trust me, put me first, do things my way, and you'll be blessed, I'm not the exception. <laughs> Whatever the word of God says about us as people, as God's children, is true. Peter believed he was the exception. He will learn painfully he's not. The disciples believed that they were exceptions. They too will learn painfully that they are not. And you and I can convince ourselves that we are the exception to what the Word of God says, but we'll always find that the Word of God never returns void. It never comes to nothing. It's always true. 
If there's an area of your life where if you're honest, you know that you're telling yourself you're the exception to the word of God. It's not going to affect you. I want to urge you and, and I want to warn you out of great love for you to change your thinking. Change your thinking. You will not be the exception that will prove the word of God false. That's not going to happen. Maybe the Lord has you here today. Maybe there's someone listening to this online in the future who is doing so just so you can hear that clearly the Lord is speaking to you. And on the flip side of that, you're not going to be the one Christian who honors God, puts your faith in God, and is not taken care of by God. You're not going to be the exception in that way either. You're not going to be the one Christian who trusts God, puts him first, and then God says, well, you know, I meant I'd take care of your needs like most of the time. You're not going to be the exception. He's going to prove himself true in that way as well. Verse 36, then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee. That would be the nicknamed sons of thunder, James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. You might want to underline that. He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, I have this underlined, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. The weight of what Jesus is facing is starting to bear down upon him. Yes, the torture would almost kill him. Yes, his crucifixion would be horrific and would kill him. But what weighed most upon Jesus, what is crushing him in this moment, is the knowledge that all of our sin, yours and mine, would be placed upon him. And in that condition, he would be separated from his heavenly father for the first time in all eternity. The first time in all eternity. And then he would face the wrath, the just and righteous punishment for our sins being poured out upon him by his father and he would face it completely alone. Completely alone. Alone in a way that we could never grasp. And as this reality begins to tear at the mind and heart of Jesus, he says to his closest earthly friends, Peter, James, and John, the inner three, can you just sit with me? Can you just be with me right now in this, my hour of torment? Now think with me for a moment. I wonder what the thought is that would fill you with so much anguish that you would be at risk of dying on the spot there from the internal emotional wrecking that would be taking place within you. That's what is literally going on here. There's a very real danger of Jesus dying from the anguish that he is in at the thought and the emotions that are overwhelming him at the thought of being separated from his father. For Jesus, that most awful of thoughts, that most awful of prospects was the thought of being separated 
from his father, from being out of relationship with his heavenly father. And it makes me think back to John chapter 17 that we studied these last two weeks when Jesus prays to his father in heaven and reveals the promise that in heaven we're going to be in relationship with the father the way that Jesus is in relationship with the father right now. And it makes me think how incredible must it be to be in relationship with the Father the way that Jesus is? How good must it be? How amazing must it be that to Jesus, the physical torment of the cross could not compare to the loss that he would be suffering in being separated from his heavenly Father? Therefore, how incredible must it be to be in relationship with the Father, the way that Jesus is. And it makes me realize that when we're in our resurrected bodies with the Lord in eternity, knowing Him fully and and being fully known, it is going to be beyond our, our wildest imaginations, more wonderful than we can imagine. Verse 39, He went a little farther and fell on His face and prayed and underlined this, Oh my Father, if it is possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Undoubtedly, one of the most incredible and important verses in the Gospels, it tells us that the cup of the Father's wrath, the wrath that had been stored up against your sin and mine, Instead of punishing all the sins that had been committed up to that point, and instead of punishing all the sins that would be committed in the future that were being committed in that moment, instead of punishing them all, all that punishment was being stored up in this cup of God's wrath, so to speak. And this was the cup that Jesus would drink of on the cross. And this verse makes it clear it was something awful, not something easy. It tells us the cross would be horrific for Jesus the man, but even more so for Jesus the Son of God. His being God did not protect him from the horrors of the cross, but rather he endured more on more levels, in more dimensions than we could possibly understand this side of heaven. We see in this verse that this was not easy for him. The cost was incalculably high, the torment indescribable. In the original language, what it actually implies is that Jesus is saying, if it is possible, and we both know it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Because the truth was it was possible. They could have just called the whole thing off right there. Made a new heaven, a new earth, started over again. So finally, what we see in this verse is that Jesus is not only submitted to the will of the Father, when it's easy or convenient, write this down. Jesus submitted to the will of his Father when it was most difficult and most costly. He submitted to the will of the Father when it was most difficult and most costly. Can we say the same? Jesus is our example. He's our standard. He's the one we're to be like. Luke's gospel adds these couple of verses. I think I put them on your outline. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
This description found only in the Gospel of Luke, who was a physician, suggests a dangerous condition known as hematidrosis, the effusion of blood into one's perspiration. It can be caused by extreme anguish or physical strain. What happens is that subcutaneous capillaries dilate and burst from you being at such tension in your body, mingling blood with the sweat that is dripping out of you. And that is the state that Jesus is in. It's so serious because when a person actually does this, they are on death's door from emotional anguish. Back in verse 37, Jesus himself had said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. There's a real threat of his human body just giving in at this moment. I would encourage you this week to spend some time meditating on this sentence from Jesus and see what the Holy Spirit speaks to you about your own life. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That last part, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will, is what Jesus was talking about when he said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I want us to really zoom in, take note of, take to heart the powerful word Jesus uses, nevertheless. I love it when that word appears, especially in the Gospels. Because you know what that word really means? That word nevertheless means despite everything I've said before this word. It's like the ultimate version of but. Nevertheless means despite every point and every objection and every factual statement I've made before this word, nevertheless, despite all that, then whatever you say after that word. And Jesus says, not as I will, but you will. To take up your cross and follow Jesus means doing what he did, putting the Father's will above everything else in your life, even when it's most difficult and most costly. It doesn't mean pretending that things aren't sometimes painful. It doesn't mean pretending that it's always easy and fun to follow Jesus and live by his word. It doesn't mean pretending that there's not areas of your life where it's exceedingly difficult to do things God's way. It means being able to be honest about all those things. Confess all those things, but when you finally reach the end of your grievances and your objections and your listing of all the reasons why it's difficult to follow Jesus, taking up your cross and following him means when you reach the end of all those statements, you say, nevertheless, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. That's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. And it only makes me love Jesus more to know that he chose to go to the cross. He wasn't trapped into doing it. He chose to do it with full awareness of what he was facing because he loves us. He loves us. Verse 40, then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, what? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Jesus is saying, I, I've asked you to stay up with me in my hour of need, and you're sleeping. But more than that, I've already told you that you're going to stumble tonight. Like, if you're not praying for me, you've got something you should be praying about. I've told you there's trouble coming your way, and you're like, I'm going to sleep on that. That's what I'm going to do. These things have a way of working themselves out. Already Peter is beginning to falter. He's ready to face death for Jesus, right? But he can't stay up late for Jesus. That's why we love Peter, isn't it? He's relatable. He's, he's you and me. And you know what? Jesus isn't judging them for it. I believe that having lived as a man and, and understanding our human weakness, Jesus is sighing with empathy when he says, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. What he's saying is he's saying, I, I know your hearts are in the right place. I, I know you want to do the right thing. I know you want to be brave and, and faithful and stand by me, but you're in bodies that are just not on board with that agenda right now. The Apostle Paul would write about this conundrum in Galatians 5. It's on your outlines when he said, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. You've got a spirit in you, but you're in a body. Your spirit belongs to Jesus, but your body is broken and sinful so that you do not do the things that you wish. You can relate to that whether you realize it or not. You can relate to that because that's all of us. But I take great encouragement from this because as the events that would lead to the cross unfold, here's what we find. The disciples will offer no help at all in any meaningful way. The work will be entirely the Lord's. But yet think back to the way we heard Jesus speak about them earlier this evening at the Last Supper. The love he has for them. The honor he wants to bestow upon them in heaven. It's extraordinary. Jesus knows that our spirits are willing, but our flesh is sometimes just weak. And he has a plan to solve that problem in eternity. But here's the amazing thing. Jesus gives us credit for fighting that good fight in the meantime. And Jesus gave his disciples credit for recognizing him as the son of God and for just doing their best to follow him. Because hanging over all the disciples' failures, hanging over the way they're going to abandon Jesus in these coming hours, are these words spoken to them by Jesus at the beginning of the Last Supper earlier this very same evening in Luke 22, Jesus said, but you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom just as my Father bestowed one upon me that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. Really? You are those who have continued with me in my trials. They couldn't even stay awake in his trials. Jesus knows the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And when I see how Jesus viewed the disciples back then, when, when I see the credit that he gives them despite all their failures, it reminds me that as crazy as it sounds, you and I have the ability to be a blessing to Jesus, just as the disciples were a blessing to him. As crazy as that sounds, we have the ability to be a blessing to Jesus even in our frail and broken human condition. And that encourages me a lot. 
Verse 42, again a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep. I have underlined in my Bible the word again, for their eyes were heavy. And I love this little note that Mark's gospel adds. At this moment in the story, Mark adds, and they did not know what to answer him. They did not know what to answer him. I love that one because that kind of honesty is what makes the gospels so credible. Because if you're one of the disciples writing the gospel, I don't know why in the world you would put that detail in there. But they just said, and we want you to know he came back and, and we were sleeping again and we didn't have anything to say. And that's a moment I think we can all relate to in our spiritual life, being caught in a moment by the Lord where you just feel like he looks at you and you're like, I got nothing. I got no explanation. I'm just sinful. That's all I got. That's all I got. Verse 44, so he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. And motioning toward Judas, who had just shown up, Jesus said, see, my betrayer is at hand. I was amazed this week to realize we're at this point in the life of Jesus. Because as some of you know, we started this series in 1993. And uh, we've been working our way through this for a while. And uh, we're actually here. I read it this week and I was like, we're actually there. So uh, I think we should reach the resurrection by Easter. So things are really going to start picking up now. It says, Jesus told his disciples, he had told them, I'm just going to look back at this for a second. The spirit indeed is willing but the flesh is weak. Now that means he, he understood their actions, but it doesn't mean he excused it. What's implied there is that had the disciples chosen to pray instead of sleep, they may have gained the strength they needed to withstand the temptation that was coming, to stand with Jesus in his hour of difficulty. When Jesus was facing down his greatest trial, he could be found praying. Did you notice that as his stress increased, he prayed more fervently? That was his response. When the disciples were facing down their greatest trial up to that point, they were found sleeping. Jesus sought spiritual strength and relief for his anguish. The disciples sought carnal relief for their anguish and ran towards sleep instead of prayer. Make a note of this and then we'll unpack it. Carnal relief to stress is always temporary, it never brings true victory, and it never helps the next time. Carnal relief, fleshly relief to stress is always temporary, never brings true victory, and never helps the next time. We got six kids. This may shock you, but there's some stress that comes along with that. And, and, and sometimes the way that we deal with that stress is with a, a nice bottle of Merlot and, and a bag of these things called snappers. They are pretzels that are covered in caramel and dark chocolate, and, and they sell them by the bag in Costco. A pathetically small bag, by the way, but they sell them in Costco. And, and you need to watch out, because if you look at the bag, it says manufactured by Satan for the purposes of enslaving humanity. Like that, so you know something's a little bit off with these snappers that we love so much. And that stuff, straight 
up carnal relief. But you know what? The next time our kids stress us out, all my wife and I have to do is call upon all the benefits that we gain from those snackers and that wine to help us deal with it and, and everything really works out. You know that's not true because there's no lasting benefits from carnal relief. Spiritual relief, on the other hand, can bring about lasting change, true victory, and it will help you the next time you face the same stress because you'll develop a pattern of calling upon the Lord for help. When we go to the Lord in prayer, when we invite him into our situation, into our stress, when we ask him to give us his thoughts on the situation, it brings about true relief. The disciples needed to sleep. I understand that. But they needed to pray even more. Wine is good in moderation. Snappers are good. There is no moderation. But prayer is better. So for me, one of my applications from my study this week, I was like, babe, we, we got to work on at least like, like at least a one-minute prayer before we open up the snappers. So there's something spiritually redeeming that we're doing in response to stress rather than being like, you know what would help with this? Just, just feeding my body and indulging myself. That, let's become a little more spiritual in this. But, but really hear me on this. If you only seek carnal relief when you encounter stress, you will fall and you will fail when the testing comes. You see, for Jesus, when stress was mounting, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane. That was where he loved to go to pray. And when stress mounts in all of our lives, we all have our Garden of Gethsemane. Yours might look a lot like a bottle. It might look a lot like TV. It might look a lot like food. And there are worse and worse, more and more dangerous things I could list after that. But if you only seek carnal relief to your stress, you'll never have true victory. It'll just enslave you and make you thirsty for more of it because it doesn't satisfy. We need spiritual relief and we need spiritual help first and foremost. We're going to be drawing from all four Gospels in this last section of our study. We're going to stay together in Matthew, but I'm going to add in some other verses from the three Gospels. And I put the most important ones on your outline just to give us the fullest picture of what's going to take place. Verse 47, And while he was still speaking, behold Judas. And you realize more than calling Judas a name or insulting him, the, the most damning indictment that could be written about Judas, about how despicable his betrayal was, are the words that follow next. Behold Judas, one of the twelve. It's everything you need to know about the level of betrayal we're talking about. One of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. These were heavily armed representatives of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling political body in Jerusalem at the time, accompanied by a cohort of Roman soldiers. And I don't know how many people you picture in your mind in this mob, but if you're like me, it was probably based upon Christmas pageants at your church. So you were like, I imagine this is a mob of maybe 13 people or so, because that's how many soldiers we always had in our church Christmas play. But that's surprisingly not a historically accurate measuring stick for most things. A cohort contained between 
200 to 1,000 fully armed Roman soldiers, but on average around 600. So there's probably all these representatives of the Sanhedrin, a lot of them are armed, and they've got around 600 fully armed Roman soldiers with them. And they've got torches with them, other gospels will tell us, because they know he's in the Garden of Gethsemane because Judas knows Jesus' habits and he knows that that's where Jesus is going to be. They're coming with their version of flashlights thinking Jesus is going to be hiding somewhere in the garden. So they've got enough men to search the whole of the Mount of Olives for Jesus and find him. That's their thinking. The Jewish leaders had to work with the Romans because they needed Roman permission to carry out a death penalty, but they were also scared that if word got out they were trying to arrest Jesus, the locals would be angry that Jesus had been arrested and they may have rioted. You'll recall if you read the Gospels, many times they wanted to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't do it because it was a feast day and there were too many people who liked Jesus who may have rioted. Verse 48 Now his betrayer, Judas, had given them a sign saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him. Immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? King James says it beautifully. Jesus says, Friend, what seekest thou? And it's staggering to me that Jesus still calls Judas friend even in the moment of his greatest and darkest betrayal of Jesus, because that's who Jesus is. It doesn't matter how wicked the person is. Jesus' goodness and holiness is never compromised. He's still Jesus. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus also said, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? In other words, it's one thing to betray me, Judas, but are you really pretending to be my friend even as you do this? It's at this point that John's gospel fills us in on an interaction that takes place. That's astounding. It's far too important to miss. I put this text on your outlines. You can follow along. It says, Jesus therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. So in other words, none of this is a surprise. He knows how this is going to go down. And this would have shocked everyone, went forward and said to them, he's not hiding whom are you seeking? He's the one in full control of this situation, as we'll see. And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Now, here's the test if your Bible is a good translation. Take a look at that statement, I am he. Do most of you in your Bibles have the word he italicized? If you do, do you know why that is? it means that word is not in the original manuscripts. And the translators of the Bible are very honest about it. That's why they italicize it. What it means is that the translators added it in because they thought that word had to be added for grammatical purposes to make the sentence make sense in English. That's why they added the word he. But they're wrong. You don't need to add the word he to make that sentence make sense. And when you see what happens next, you'll understand why. You see, Jesus doesn't answer them, I am he. He answers them, I am. Ego, I may. I am is the name of God. It's the name of God that God revealed of himself to Moses when he spoke to Moses from the burning bush, calling Moses to go and free the Israelites from Egypt. Let me read to you the verse from Exodus 3. It's also on your outlines. 
Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Jesus says, Whom are you seeking? They answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus replies, I am. The same words that he spoke to Moses from the burning bush back in Exodus 3. Now keep reading and see what happens next in John 18, still on your outlines. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he, Jesus, said to them, I am he, actually what he said was I am. Now check this out what happened. Underline this in your Bibles or on your outlines. They drew back and fell to the ground. So this is what happens. Jesus says, I am. He just speaks his name. And everyone there, the hundreds of them who are there to arrest Jesus, are involuntarily physically moved back and knocked to the floor. That's what happens when Jesus just speaks his name in that moment. What's happening is Jesus has just given everyone there the tiniest glimpse of the power that is at his disposal just to make sure everyone there understands the reality of the situation. This is Jesus saying, just so we're clear, you're not taking me. I'm going with you. That's what's happening here. It doesn't matter how many soldiers you send. If I didn't choose to go with you, you would not be able to take me. I am. It's epic. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And these guys apparently have guts or they're just stubborn in their sin. Because if I were them, I would have been like the same thing we said the first time. <laughs> That's what I would have said. But they actually say again, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I've told you that I'm he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these, speaking of his disciples, go their way. And then John tells us why. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Jesus is saying, here I am. You guys can take me. Now get this. He's not negotiating. He's not asking. He's telling them, however, you may not take any of my disciples. As my father and I have already determined that none of them will die while they are in my care on the earth. Jesus gives them a command to leave his disciples alone. And they obey his command. You know why? Because they had no choice. They had no choice. So write this down. Jesus was in control of every detail surrounding his death. He was in control of every detail surrounding his death. Continuing back in Matthew 26, we're in verse 50. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and took him. Luke's gospel tells us, when those around him, the disciples, saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So, I mean, good for them. They're brave in this moment. But one of the disciples decided he didn't need to wait for Jesus' answer. As verse 51 tells us, and suddenly... One of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword, struck the servant of the high priest, and cut off his ear. We know from John's gospel that the one with the sword was 
Peter, and the servant's name was Malchus. This servant of the high priest would have been there most likely making notes about what was happening. He certainly wouldn't have been armed. So Peter, who fears nothing and nobody and is ready to die for Jesus, draws his sword and says, let's do this, and goes after one of the only unarmed people there, misses his head and cuts off his ear. Luke's gospel tells us that Jesus then answers his disciples and says, permit even this. He tells them, allow them to take me. And he touched his ear and healed him. It's astounding the hard-heartedness of those there because Melchus doesn't become a follower of Jesus. It's not documented anywhere. Nobody says, hey, maybe we shouldn't mess with this son of God guy. But you know why Jesus heals the ear of Melchus? Because if he hadn't, there would have been four crosses on Calvary the next day. Peter would have been crucified for attacking and assaulting somebody being accompanied by a Roman guard. But what Jesus did was completely remove every trace of evidence that Peter had cut off the guy's ear. They couldn't really make a case against Peter and say he cut off the guy's ear. Well, he has two ears. Couldn't do it. Jesus removed all the evidence against Peter. And he does the same thing for you and I with our sins. It's interesting to me, I probably shouldn't say this, but that's never stopped me before. It's interesting to me that the last miracle Jesus did before he went to the cross was heal someone who had been attacked with the sword by the Pope. That's probably nothing. I should just go on. Anyway, moving on to verse 52. <clears throat> Reading too much into it, I'm sure. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now there are Christian pacifists who base their position on this verse. As is the case with all issues, it's important to examine what the whole Bible says about any issue. Because earlier this same evening, you don't even have to go that far back, Jesus had told his disciples this. But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack, and he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. So whatever your position is on use of force by Christians, it has to harmonize, it has to make sense with both of those verses. And it's for this reason that I personally hold that Jesus is teaching that Christianity is not to be spread through the use of military force or violence. But Christians are to defend themselves and their families when attacked. And I understand that not all believers hold that view, so you'll have to study both verses and come to your own conclusions on that. Jesus continues speaking and he says in verse 53 to Peter and his disciples, or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? That'd be 72,000 angels if you're interested in the math. And you might think 72,000 is, is big, but it's not really big. But, but keep in mind that in 2 Kings 19.35, a single angel killed 185,000 men in one night. So 72,000 angels is, is pretty legit. You could wipe out the whole earth in one night with 72,000 pretty easily. Verse 54, Jesus says, How then could the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen thus? It's got to happen this way. If I didn't want it to happen, I could just call down angels and kill everybody trying to arrest me right now. 
In that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, the mob that was there to arrest him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you, teaching in the temple, and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. In other words, Jesus is just saying, let's just call this what this is. You're arresting me here at night with all these soldiers because you know you've got no business arresting me. I didn't hide. I haven't been operating in secret. I've been in the temple right in front of you. You could have grabbed me any time, but you didn't because you know that I'm an innocent man. In Luke's gospel, Jesus adds the words, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. It was indeed the darkest hour and period of time the world has ever known. And then verse 56 ends with these sobering words. You, you remember Peter said, even, even if all deny you, I won't. I'll die for you. And it said, and all the disciples said thus. Verse 56 ends with these sobering words. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. All of them left Jesus alone. If the Holy Spirit's laying something on your heart and he's speaking to you about something in your life specifically, you should listen to him. You should listen to him. But if he's not and you're just wondering, what, what do I take away from today's study? I hope it would simply be overwhelming gratitude toward Jesus for what he did for you and I in going to the cross. Today is a day to, to go to the back in this coming time of prayer and worship and take communion and just say, thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And just be grateful. Be grateful. Frederick Leahy said, Lord, forgive us for the times we have read about Gethsemane with dry eyes. He said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Oh, my Father, if it is possible let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, we are in awe of your love and your goodness to us. Father, we marvel at your love demonstrated in your restraint as you allowed your son to go through what he went through. And we thank you that you weren't trapped, you weren't caught, you weren't dragged, but you chose the cross. And you were sovereign over all of it. And it all unfolded exactly the way you wanted it to. And while we cannot possibly claim to understand why you would love us that way, we are so thankful that you do. We are so thankful that you do. Thank you for loving us knowing everything about us, knowing that while our spirit is willing, our flesh is still weak. Thank you for loving us, God. 
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.